Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. My name is Nora Hawkins, and I'm a research assistant with the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm back in the studio with Heidi Binko for the second part of our podcast today. Ms. Binko is the Associate Director of Special Climate Initiatives at the Rockefeller Family Fund, where she works closely with national and regional advocates and foundations working at the nexus of climate and coal. Heidi has played a leading role in creating strategic partnerships between funders and advocates who are committed to transitioning local economies throughout the U.S. off of coal. In addition to her busy full-time job, Ms. Binko serves as co-chair of both the Environmental Grantmakers Association and the Climate and Energy Funders Group. Before joining the Rockefeller Family Fund in 2008, Ms. Binko was executive director of the West Wind Foundation, a not-for-profit organization based in Virginia. Ms. Binko is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Heidi, thank you again for joining us today. And the first part of our interview, we talked a lot about your background and the role of environmental philanthropy. In the second half, I'd like to focus on environmental advocacy a bit more broadly. Often there's frustration felt on the part of the public and even from within the environmental community when environmental advocates seek to block a project without providing concrete alternatives. How do you engage with these concerns and how do you ensure that the solutions offered are viable? So first of all, Nora, it's really a pleasure to be here talking with you this afternoon. So thank you for having me. And this, I think, is one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves as funders and as a as a movement. You're exactly right. We spend a lot of time saying no to projects, and we are not saying yes to enough alternatives. So I think where, where the rubber really hits the road for me on this one is is in coal country, right? I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about... Um, about stopping mountaintop removal mining, about closing down coal plants, but it's really difficult to do in places that have been dependent on an, on an industry. One of the things that we're starting to think about Rockefeller with at Rockefeller with a lot of our colleagues and our, our funding peers is the idea of a just transition, right? So what happens in these communities when the coal industry when the coal industry leaves? Now it, it's interesting. Um, we've done um, we've done a bit of study. We, we've we've taken a look at who's funding what in, on coal issues across the country, which is the area in which I work, and there's very, very little resources going to this. And it's really kind of staggering when you start to think about how much we're talking about moving beyond coal. We should be spending a lot more time and a lot more money thinking about these just transition issues, but we're not yet. I hope our foundation can play a role in that in the next year. Um, you know, I also just one small point I want to add. I'm I'm from a, a small town called Fredonia, New York, and there's a coal plant um, right on Lake Erie. So I grew up with my aunt working in that plant for 30 years. And recently, the Sierra Club and others announced that they wanted to try to close that coal plant. Coal plant. And for me, it, it was you know all these issues just hit home because I understand you know I understand the the the, the deadly implications of climate of coal on climate change, on health, on water pollution, all of those things. But boy, it's tough when you grow up in an area and it's a very small community and you know how important those jobs are. You know, I'm not sure what's going to happen to that community once those job leaves. And we need to be thinking about that as as funders and as advocates. Absolutely. In that same vein, what are your thoughts on the most appropriate way to phase out coal? In particular, how should both the ongoing energy needs and that just transition in terms of providing new jobs, how should that occur? And do you think natural gas is potentially a viable transition fuel, at least in the short term? 
Yeah, this is uh, this is an excellent question. We could probably spend three days just talking about this, but but I think maybe to to answer out succinctly, it's it's interesting. Um, when you look at all the the coal plants that advocates are trying to trying to close now, and we talk about coal plant retirement, a lot of those coal plants are not running at their full capacity, and they they don't they're not baseload plants, right? So when you think about energy production, um, right now uh, the the impact of closing those plants plants is a lot less on energy production than than one might think, right? So I think that we're we're safe to go forward closing down those the dirtiest of of those old plants. But there's going to come a point when, and we are already starting to rely a little bit more on, on natural gas. Um, I would like, personally, I would like to see us have that that bridge be as short as possible because we all know the problems associated with fracking. However, um, if we're serious about that, and I, I think we are, we, we really have to do more, much more on in the area of, of ramping up renewable energy. I think that, you know, our that's just going much too, much too slow. And that's, you know, that's a job of, of, of private investors, of of VC firms, that's the job of environmentalists. That's the the form of or the job of new companies. So more, much more is needed in there to phase out coal. Thank you. That's a great and very helpful answer for all of us working on these issues. Can you provide us a bit more of an overview on how RFF's power plant finance project is helping to undermine the view of coal? as a secure and profitable investment. Sure. So another topic I could talk <laughs> talk a long time about, but I will I will be short and to the point. So um, RFF uh, in 2007 launched what we then called the Power Plant Finance Project. And the idea here was that um, after the, the coal rush, which I mentioned before, string of new plants proposed around the country, advocates were using legal strategies and primarily grassroots organizing tools to close those plants. However, there was the economic, there was an economic, there still is, and financial case to be made against coal. Um, as we know, environmentalists are, are not the, the best messengers, nor are they the, the most trusted messengers in that case, right? So there, there was an idea, there was a sort of a, a, a you know, a, a gut intuition at RFF that we could be making these, you know, we could find somebody to, to help advocates make these, um, make these arguments a lot better. So the Power Plant Finance Project was launched in 2007 to help advocates around the country that were working in coalitions to stop new plants show that investments in those new plants in front of PUC, public utility commissions, right, those are the commissions that make these decisions, to show PUC commissioners that investing in coal would have a, a real detrimental impact um, and significantly adversely impact ratepayers, right? So that's what the power plant finance project started to do, and quite successfully, um, we ended up closing a lot of plants, not just for for those reasons, but I would say it played a very significant role. And the power plant finance project became so successful that it actually we actually created um, we ended up creating its own uh, nonprofit organization, which is now called the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. So not a fun name, but they do fun work. <laughs> That's wonderful. Great resource as well. Um, I think we talked a little, touched briefly on this in our first conversation, but under your tenure as executive director, the West Wind Foundation launched a new climate initiative focused on funding organizations catalyzing climate action in the southeastern United States. Why target this region for increased effort? Mm-hmm. Well, a couple reasons, um, and I talked a little bit about this before, but but first there was uh, little to no action in the region, right? And that's because um, uh, many of the organizations that are that are in the southeast have historically been overlooked by the environmental philanthropic community. So these are groups with with phenomenal staff people, phenomenal strategies, just 
great, you know, great ideas and tactics, but not necessarily the resources to implement them. So you combine the fact that that the South in the Southeast at the time, which was back in about 2005, there was a really a void in any action on climate change as compared to other regions who were really moving. Um, that combined with the fact that resources in the re- organizations in the region were under resourced, and thirdly, we were based in the region. Um, it made sense for us to to work there. Definitely. In your opinion, are there concerns or hesitations about taking action on climate change that are specific to the U.S. Southeast? Uh, I I would say not concerns or hesitations, but I I think the way that that I would frame it um, is that, and you know, I think it's like this probably in all regions. The Southeast seems to be particularly sensitive to this, but um, it's about how you frame it and it's about who delivers the message, right? So I think in the Southeast in particular, the the groups that are working on these issues, they need to be homegrown and they need to be based in the region. And you can't talk about climate change, right? Or it's much more difficult to talk about climate change. A great case in point is South Carolina Representative Bob Inglis, who lost his election seat because he talked about climate change, right? So I think that there's um, there's something real to be said there. Um, I think a lot of this is changing, particularly with President Obama's um, announcement, uh, his remarks in his inaugural address. But it's still difficult to work in some of these communities, and I think the most important thing is to make sure that um, groups are home homegrown and you have the right messengers. Great. Well, as a native of Seattle, I'm keenly interested in the coal export facilities that have been proposed in Washington State, and I know you mentioned some efforts on these coal export facilities in our first talk. What do you think has been done well in these campaigns so far, and what might need improvement? So you're, you're referring to the Power Pass Coal Campaign, which is a phenomenal group of organizations working in Oregon and Washington State to stop the export of coal. Um, we were pri- privileged enough to give them some of their first seed money to help bring the coalition together when they were first identifying coal exports as a threat. Um, so we started working with them a number of years ago, and since then we've done some funding around the Gateway Pacific Terminal in Bellingham, Washington. Um, the, the Power Pass Coal Campaign, uh, they, they're, I really, I can't say enough good things about them. I mean, they've, they've, they've educated the public. They've done a great job of identifying the local in the, the, the local impacts, the health impacts, what happens to these communities from coal, the dust that flies off of coal trains. They've turned out folks to the thousands at these public hearings. They've, and oh, and along with, with that outside game, right, they've played a really smart and strategic inside game. They've got great advocates working with key leaders in Washington and Oregon State um, to, to try to influence those key decision makers, right? Um, so all that is what they've done well. I, I think an area of improvement, and I think that they would agree, is their work with labor. You know, it's interesting. I go to a lot of coal industry conferences, and I was at a conference a couple of months ago, and one of the, the main producers uh, in the, the Powder River Basin, um, this representative from, from Arch Coal, kept talking about the enormous environmental opposition that they were facing in the PR, in the, excuse me, in the Pacific Northwest. But he mentioned during that conference that he really was confident that, that, the, that the coal industry was going to win and that they were going to win because of labor. And if you talk to the advocates in the Pacific Northwest, it's really tough. You know, there's just there's we we really don't have an answer to to the jobs question there just just because of of, of the, the the specific circumstances. So they're doing a better job on labor in Washington. I, I think that they would say that, you know, ties are a bit tenuous in, in Oregon, but um, for the most part, they've done phenomenal work. Great. Well, that leads me right into my next question. While there may not be a easy answer in terms of job creation with coal exports in the Pacific Northwest, generally speaking, what do you think is the most compelling soundbite for breaking down the false dichotomy between the environment and jobs? 
Yeah, and I think this is another. I, there, I think anybody would be really hard pressed to answer this question in a in a way that does it does it justice. So, um, in in the time period we have. So, all that being said, um, I like to look at the solar industry and the phenomenal growth in jobs that the solar in- industry has experienced in the last couple of years. I think it's on magnitude of twenty four percent increase in the number of jobs between two thousand and ten and two thousand and twelve, and that's only supposed to increase in twenty thirteen. So that's a great example of. You know, it's not jobs or the environment. It's both. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, as a concluding question for you, um, in an ongoing campaign such as coal exports, how do you gauge success both on a personal level and in your position at RFF? I love this question. And Nora, thank you again for, for speaking with me and for, for, you know, spending some time talking about these issues that are, are near and dear to my near and dear to my heart. So on a personal level, for me at the end of the day, it's all about people and it's all about the groups that I with that I work with. So um, whether it's in the Gulf Coast or in the Pacific Northwest, if I can in some small way help get those groups additional resources or help them connect them to experts that they need, um, whatever I can do to, to help them as a as a funder, I'm thrilled to do, and that that makes that makes me very happy. Um, on a professional level at RFF, uh, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but again, we have to. Think Think about the problem comprehensively. So if you're thinking about exporting coal, well, actually, let me take a step back. If you're thinking about, if you think about all the gains that we've made on climate in the United States by stopping new plants, and now also by retiring, um, helping to retire a good portion of the nation's fleet, all of that could get turned around and negated if we then turn around and mine a bunch more coal from the PRB and then export it, Right. That being said, if we stop coal exports in the Pacific Northwest, that's great for those communities up there. But it's just going to go out through the Gulf, or it's just going to go out through the East Coast. So we're in a position now where I think we need to be really strategic and smart with resources because, you know, we could win in one place and sort of lose the war. So professional success, I think, here means means taking a comprehensive look at the problem and winning in the Pacific Northwest, winning in the Gulf, and seeing if there's anything that we can do on East Coast. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's my pleasure. It's been such a privilege speaking with you, and I so appreciate the important work you do, and thank you so much for sharing some of your invaluable insights with us. Thank you for having me, Nora.